Well, thank you very much, Chris. And um, this comes with a health warning that, uh, unfortunately, I've got a cold, so I'm going to keep my distance. That's why I'm sitting over there, you know, remote from everybody else. Um, but I, it's only a cold, so it will go away. Now, um, some of you may know that I have a favourite Christmas film. Have you got a, cra- cra- a favourite Christmas film? The, Grin- the Grinch. Home Alone. Well, my... What? Yeah, it's a good film. And so my daughter, Jenny, and I, we, we have a favourite Christmas film. We couldn't resist the opportunity because there was nothing on television, so we thought, well, we'll, we'll stick the DVD on, and uh, it, there it was. And one of the advantages, advantages of being retired, as I am, is that if you want to, if you're so inclined... You can watch numerous trashy American Christmas movies, and they really are genuinely awful, every afternoon on Channel 5. But my favourite film that I must watch at Christmas, that Jenny and I watched the other week, was um, not White Christmas, not It's a Wonderful Life, uh, not Home Alone, not, none of those ones, but it's Love Actually. Who, who likes Love Actually? Yeah? Oh, yeah, good. Good, we're on the same wavelength. And... Um, you might be interested to know that a good friend of mine is in it, and that's the Reverend Tim Hatwell, who is the vicar who married uh, Kiera Knightley at the beginning of the film. He doesn't marry her, but he performs the wedding um, near the beginning of the film. He got the part because he knows the director and writer of the film, Richard Curtis, and, um, and so that's how he got it, and uh, Richard asked him if he would... Uh, I, I couldn't answer that, I'm afraid. I have no idea. I don't think so, no. In many ways, the film is corny beyond belief and perhaps a completely unrealistic fantasy. But at its heart is a number of related strands about people finding love at Christmas that give it perhaps the greatest ever feel-good factor in a British movie. And my hat goes off to Richard Curtis. And with an election looming large, perhaps there are people around who would like to see Hugh Grant really become the Prime Minister. Anything's better than Boris Johnson, that's for sure. Oh! Sorry for any listeners who are... who have instantly switched off. Um, But if there is a passage in the Bible that has a similar sort of feel-good factor uh, about it uh, is the one that Chris read a moment or two ago um, for us, our gospel reading. For it, too, is a story of love and that great song that we sang just beforehand, uh, Reckless Love, is very much on the same sort of theme. A love that triumphs over all the odds, a love that knows no limits, a ripple in the history of humankind. The aftershock waves are still being experienced by us today, a love that is for you and is for me. I hate to admit it, but I am a great Robbie Williams fan. Anyone else here a great Robbie Williams fan? And uh, one of his best songs, in my opinion, um, especially on my DVD of the Nebworth concerts uh, from umpteen years ago, is a song called Love Supreme. Does anyone know the song Love Supreme? Um, Yeah, it's a good, good song. And if there was a title for this sermon today, it would be Love Supreme. 
Well, in the reading that we had, we see three examples of love and how a little bit of love can go a long way to making this the best Christmas ever for each one of us. And the reading, of course, focuses on Mary, the mother of Jesus, and perhaps in the evangelical church, it's been, uh, uh, Mary has been a little bit ignored. Um, but the mother of Jesus, it seems reasonable to begin with the love of Mary tonight. Consider for a moment, if you will, her predicament. She's young, and recent research suggests that she was as young as 16, possibly even younger. And she finds herself pregnant, despite having never slept with a man, possibly about to be dumped by her fiancé, Joseph, a much older man, who would be perfectly entitled to do that in the custom of the day, if he so believed that she had indeed had intercourse with another man. And to be an unmarried mother at the age of 16 would have been a blight on her character, as indeed it was for women in our own country until relatively recently. It would be seen as bringing shame on her family. And she would have been turned out on the street as an outcast. Not a good thing to be pregnant at the age of 16 and unmarried in Israel at the time of Jesus. Nowadays, with one of the highest rates of teenage pregnancy in Europe, sadly, perhaps we in this country have become immune to it and no longer does it seem to bring scandal. Anyway, Mary had good cause to be upset, to be angry, to be afraid, to feel sorry for herself, perhaps, even a bit bewildered and not a little unsure as to how she will cope with this situation. But that's not her reaction to her predicament at all. Firstly, she cannot wait to tell someone her good news, and she rushes to her cousin Elizabeth. And something about the way Mary called out a greeting, or maybe it was her sudden appearance at the door, that caused Elizabeth to know immediately that what was going on was going to be good news. And what had happened, uh, for she immediately proclaims how wonderful this news is. Mary's own response to this greeting is encapsulated in the ten verses that form the last part of that reading, verses 46 to 55. Um, I encourage you to go home and read it again. And they're probably some of the most familiar words, even if we don't know them off by heart, but some of the most familiar words that, um, in the whole Bible. For up and down the country, they're used usually at evening services at churches. Um, and the words, um, you can find them in the metrical version that we call Tell Out My Soul. We sang, o'clock, sang at the five o'clock service. And sometimes um, also we sing it as a, we chant it as, as a canticle called the Magnificat. The Latin verb which translates as I glorify, or more obviously, I magnify the Magnificat. And what you may not realize is that there are references to the Magnificat being used in morning and evening prayer services in Christian churches from as early as the 6th century AD. It's been established as a gospel canticle at the evening office in the English church for nearly a thousand years. Very significant. So for nearly a millennium, Christians have been reciting these words in churches and cathedrals across the land, a practice that continues today. And Mary's experience 
of the grace of God thereby becomes in some way characteristic of Christian discipleship in successive generations. We are reminded as we see our lives through the lens of hers of what God has done for us and is continuing to do for us. All life is here. In Mary's song, we find social upheaval, poverty, hunger, conflict, and the experience of the intimacy of a relationship with God and the majesty of it. Above all, this is a song of hope that while Mary was not an aristocrat and did not live in a palace, probably had few possessions, eking out a living, and with no prospect of ever becoming a world leader, a rich landowner, or a clever entrepreneur, living in a land under oppression by an occupying enemy, despite that desperate and difficult situation in which she lived, and her current predicament, she was still able to sing out this great song of praise to God. And for us too today, the implication is that whatever the circumstances, however hard things may seem at the time, ultimately the victory has been won, and that with God for us, who can be against us? I was reminded of the passage in the Philippians chapter 4 where Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. He didn't say we should do so when things are going really well and everything's fantastic. No, he said rejoice in the Lord always. In other words, in the bad times as well as the good. And just to make sure you've got the message, he repeats it. And again I say rejoice. Mary had every right to feel a bit depressed and worried, but she was having none of it. She just let her heart out in this great song of praise. And may we too learn to stop grumbling when things are hard, and perhaps we are going through difficult times, the going tough, and everything seems stacked up against us. Let's learn from Mary to give thanks to God for all the good things and blessings that he continuously showers upon us that we all too often fail to notice or take for granted. May Mary's song give us hope that in a dark world where our leaders cannot even agree how to save the planet, there is still good to be seen. God is still in control. And that at Christmas, probably more than any other time of the year, except perhaps Easter Day, we have a right and a duty to shout the good news of the birth of Jesus Christ from the rooftops, just as Mary uh, just as Mary did. When I was in Dartford, uh, in the town centre a few years back, there was Santa and his sleigh. I think it was the um, Rotary Club or something. They, they got their sleigh and the music was playing. And uh, you might think that there were, there were carols playing, but not at all. It was Elgar's Enigma Variations. I couldn't see exactly what that had to do with Christmas. And the previous week it had been Jerusalem, which, again, I didn't think was particularly Christmassy. However, Sainsbury's made up for it, because when I went there to do my shopping, uh, there was carols coming over loud and clear on the, their PA system. And I just felt that perhaps this Rotary Club thing had, had got it wrong, and it was sort of political, political correctness gone mad. No carols, mustn't offend anyone. But it seems to me that we shouldn't be afraid of talking about Jesus. If we can't talk about it at Christmas, you know, uh, when can we do it? And reminding everyone that he is the reason for the season, 
No one minds in at least if you talk about Jesus. No one is offended. No one objects. People of other faiths expect you to do it and surprised when you don't. Do we really have to secularise Christmas? It's bad enough with all the commercialisation and that's another topic altogether. One last thought before we move on. Someone wrote the other day about what a tough cookie Mary was. She was up for it. She was totally in control and absolutely delighted at the predicament she found herself in. No doubts, no second thoughts, no sobbing on Elizabeth's shoulder. Mother of the Son of God, bring it on. The Bible isn't particularly big on women. There are, are a few and some powerful tales about the likes of Esther and others. But Mary's story is the most powerful of them all, and too often we neglect it. Secondly, there was the love of Elizabeth, or we could say the love of family. For had Elizabeth reacted to Mary's arrival in a way that might have been expected of her, oh Mary, you're not pregnant, are you? The whole story might have been quite different. And just as Love Actually is a film about finding love where you didn't know it existed and fighting for that love and offering forgiveness to those who have caused hurt, so too should Christmas be a time when family differences and arguments are set aside. For God loved the world so much, so much, that he sent his one and only Son to be our Saviour. And how much more ought we to pour out our love in our families and our relationships at this time of year. Many surveys say that while Christmas ought to be a time of love and goodwill to all, it is too often quite the opposite and forced to spend several days together as a family. The cracks that can be ignored and forgotten about during the rest of the year all too often become apparent and incidences of family violence, marriage breakdowns and stress are higher than at any other time of year. Even suicide rates go up. But Elizabeth took the lead here and her joyful reaction to Mary's arrival enabled and permitted Mary's great song of joy to burst forth. Just a little happiness and sunshine from us can go such a long way to enabling others to feel good about themselves too. And of course, when Christmas should be a time of loving, healing and forgiveness in families, the same can be applied to our spiritual family our brothers and sisters in Christ here at St. Matthew's. And maybe today there is a broken relationship that needs mending, a hurt that needs forgiveness and healing, an irritation that must be dealt with. And don't leave today without bringing it to God for him to deal with. Excuse me, I've got to blow my nose. <laughs> <clears throat> so the love of Mary, the love of family in the form of Elizabeth, and finally, the love of God. For if this passage is about anything, it's about Mary's relationship with God, her love for her Lord, and his overwhelming love for her. For God did not choose a princess in a palace, a warrior queen in a castle, a rich lady in a mansion, or a university lecturer, to bear his one and only son. He chose a poor girl who, materially speaking, had nothing. And the whole Bible is littered with accounts of people chosen by God to perform specific tasks who had neither status nor qualification in human terms, 
for the task to which they were called. And yet God knew they were the right ones. Gideon, Moses, Elijah, Joshua, Samson, David, Mary, Elizabeth, the disciples, especially Peter, Paul, and so on. And like them, we all think, I couldn't possibly do that. Richard must mean someone else. You see, God not only loves us and has a perfect plan for our lives, but also provides us with the gifts that we need to carry out his will and sends his Holy Spirit to strengthen us and to guide us in, doing out that will, in carrying out that will. Mary wasn't the strongest candidate for the role of the mother of God, but God's demands on her were not huge. She didn't have to move. She didn't have to change her lifestyle. She didn't have to go on retreat. She didn't have to undergo years of theological training. She didn't have to take an exam or anything like that. He simply took her as she was in all her comparative weakness and entrusted her with the most important role that there has ever been for a human being. Wow. Now, we can't be Mary, but there will be people here that God is calling to do specific tasks for him, perhaps in the church, perhaps in the places where he has placed us, such as where we work, in our clubs, in our friendship circles, in our families. And I want to encourage us today to begin to seek out what God might be asking of us. It took me a long while to recognize God's call on my life, and I have felt ever since that I should have left banking much earlier than I did. But God's timing is perfect, and so I'm forced to admit that when I eventually did respond, it was at the right time for me. So if that's about God's calling specific people to specific tasks within the family of the church, then Mary's song is about far more than that, for it's a song that expresses what God has done for his people down the ages and what he continually is doing today. God's love is endless and unconditional. It knows no boundaries or any distinction between young and old, rich and poor, black or white. God's love supreme is expressed in the gift of his Son to be our Saviour, Jesus Christ, a love that we can experience by, be experienced by each one of us today. And that may be just what some of us need to hear, that God loves you, that God loves us. He longs to be a part of our lives and to bring us that same love and healing that Mary experienced 2,000 years ago. Don't wait for the right moment. Don't wait until you've got all the answers. Don't think that God loves everyone and can possibly love you. God's love supreme is for all. It's for you and it's for me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you love the world so much that you sent your only son to be our saviour. And your love, Lord, uh, knows no boundaries. Help us, Lord, in our unbelief to accept your love and to make you a part of our lives, whether it's for the first time tonight or for the umpteenth time. And be with us and strengthen us and guide us as we seek to do your work and your will. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.